turn your Bibles to, we're going to end up in Exodus 32, but you can kind of mark that and then jump to Exodus 24. We're going to start there as far as context. I like options. I like choices. And uh, I like 31 flavors of Baskin and Robbins. I always wanted to go in there and just say, you know, can I just get one of those little pink spoons of each one of the flavors and try? Um, I, I don't know if I would get in trouble. Do they have a limit on how many samples they give you? I don't know. But I'm curious to see. I like those. I like multiple choice tests. I figure I can eliminate some of the ones that are obviously not the answer. And then I can figure out which ones are the answer. How many guys pr- prefer the multiple choice tests back in the day or essays? I like that, too. From the standpoint of if you if you can't hit the nail on the head, you can always beat the board, right? And so I figured somewhere in my rambling, I'll get something that'll be right, and I can get some points out of this. I like that too. I don't like fill in the blank. That's different. That's calling me to, you know. But I, I like options. I like streaming music. I like not have to buy the CD and whatever to have choices. But we live in an age and a culture of personalization, right? Everything is about that. If you're into marketing or dealing with uh, the... Um, public in any capacity, you know that the best way to do that is to try to, you know, what are people's needs today? Where are they at? Where, how do we help them? So we live in an age of personalization. It's all about the individual and what are your specific needs and how can we somehow make you feel like you're important and with whatever we're trying to feed, sell, provide for you, whatever, uh, and get you to buy. That's the way we do things. And the problem is when we kind of look to Jesus and to the word of God, we have a tendency to approach God the same way we approach everything else. And we want a God who's personalized. And so we have so emphasized this uh, over the last several decades that it's all about, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus. And I have a person, God said, well, it's talking about God that's personal to me. Well, I have my own personal views. Well, I'm all personal this, personal that, personal that. And, and we possibly have maybe misrepresented the Christian faith, the word of God and who God is and created him into something maybe that he really isn't. Not to say God's not personal, but maybe in our desire for something personal, we have fashioned him to what we perceive we need rather than to what we really need and who he really is. And this is a classic example of that. It's awesome for us to go into the time of preaching, teaching, the time of, of studying the word together from that song and, and just meditating on the reality of God is our refuge. Isn't that a beautiful song? That, that, that concept, that thought that God really is our refuge. And, and yet the Israelites found that to be true. God had delivered them from Egypt and done amazing, wonderful things in their midst. And yet it wasn't very long before they were looking for other refuges. In the wilderness, in the desert, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God has revealed himself and done some just spectacular things that we would long to be able to experience, not just read about. And yet as quick as those things happened, they turned back to their false gods, and even created some new ones to worship. In Exodus chapter 24, to give you the context, verses 3 through 8, here's what's going on. God has done amazing things for them, and Moses, God has spoken to him from the mountain. He's given him the Ten Commandments, and then in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings 
and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, put them in big giant bowls, and the other half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant and the Lord that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all the words. What's going on here? Well, again, looking at this Mount Sinai, they're camped out at the base of this mountain. The whole nation is there, 2.5 million people approximately, and they make a, a pillar for each group, and then they give them all the fine print. I mean, there's no hidden deals here. It's not like, do you, are you going to do everything I told you to do? And then then God slips in some some commands they don't know about. No, it's all out. These put it all out there. There's no hidden messages. The fine print has been read for them, and they all multiple times, actually three to be specific, two I mentioned here, but there's three total times that the word of God is mentioned to them in the people of God, affirm, we will do it. We will obey this. We agree with this. Whatever you say, God, they fear God, they submit to God, and they affirm, we will do what you say. And to ratify, to confirm that covenant, there is the shedding of blood on behalf of the people before God. They, they sacrifice oxen as an offering. Part of the blood is put on the altar, and part of the blood is sprinkled onto the people to confirm that they are covered and they are affirming this blood, this uh, blood covenant between them and God. So, I mean, they've gone above and beyond to make it clear, here's what the expectations are. We agree to submit to those things. And in return, God has said, you will be my people. I will be your God. You're going to be my people. I love you. I have led you out like a child out of Egypt. I have provided for you and protected you, led you out of bondage and captivity, led you to the Red Sea, preserved you through the Red Sea from Pharaoh's mighty, powerful army, provided for you nourishment in the wilderness by manna and quail and water where there's no water. I've led you to this moment. I have revealed my glory as fire and cloud encompasses this giant mountain behind us. They've heard God speak the covenant, speak the Ten Commandments from the mountain. Moses has gone up, gotten the specifics, come back down and told them the specifics, a little more of the information about the covenant. And they have affirmed it three times. What happens next? Well, then in verse 12, the Lord says, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Speaking to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone and the law of the commandment which I have written for their instructions. And Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So he's put, in his absence, he has put um, Aaron in charge. Go to Aaron if you have any questions, you need anything, go to him. And then verse 15, the Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord 
was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, from that point, Moses, we we zoom in on the conversation between God and Moses. And God gives him the specifics, a little more specifics of the covenant, a little more specifics on how they will... uh, have a just and righteous culture and rules that they need and interacting with one another. And if somebody kills somebody, here's how you kind of prove whether they're guilty of and they need to be killed or whether they it was um, involuntary manslaughter versus uh, premeditated murder. And here's the consequences of those. And if somebody's oxen kills somebody, here's what you do. And whatever. goes through specifics. Then he goes through specifics of what the tabernacle is going to look like, the tent where God is going to set his presence presence. And where they're going to relate to God and go and worship. He gives them all the details. All of that stuff he's laying out in the mountain over this period of 40 days while Moses is up there. And they can see the cloud. They can see the fire. It's not like they went off to a far part of the wilderness and nobody knew what was going on. The nation sees God is up there and he's clearly talking to Moses. But they don't see Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the span of time that they're waiting, they begin to ask some questions. They begin to wonder if Moses is going to come back down, they begin to wonder what happened to Moses. Maybe Moses was consumed by fire. Maybe Moses was, um, you know, got hungry. There's no, you know, like McDonald's up there and there's no fast food place. I mean, where is he getting his, uh, you know, his, his nourishment? Where is he? And they start asking questions and questions begin to surface in families and in tribes and over the whole nation. And they begin to bring those things to Aaron and they challenge whether Moses will ever come back down to them again. And so in chapter 32, verse 1, we have the context of the passage we're going to focus on this morning. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us as for This Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they said, make us gods that will lead us out to the land that God had promised, which renders a big, giant question for us this morning. What do you do when you have to wait? In fact, to go past that, what who do you worship? Where do you run when you have to wait? Where do you go? What do you do? What do you think about? What, what is your refuge, as we just sang, in times of waiting? I mean, it's easy to walk with God when he's parting Red Seas and he's providing food and he's doing all these things and everything's glorious is happening and there's plagues happening and everything's just, it's exciting and it's wonderful. and it's what, But what happens when, when things go back to normal and now the New Year's resolutions and the commitments for the next year of kind of, we're now we're a couple of weeks back in and now we're back into school and work and this and that and the rituals and the habits and the routines and God is a little back further and we're We've already messed up for two weeks on our weekly, I mean, our yearly Bible reading and the quiet time's not as consistent as we plan. And now, you know, things are getting tough and the year ahead is looking daunting. And, and we start asking questions and we start wondering, where's God? Where's God? How come he hasn't come through like we expect? Why hasn't he shown up like, we, like we've expected? We've prayed, we've asked him and we asked once and he didn't show up <clears throat> or he hasn't answered the way we wanted. Or we, what do you do when you wait? 
What do you do when there's a prolonged period of time where God seems silent and absent and his presence is not manifested to you? What do you do? This says a whole lot more about what we believe about God and who we believe God to be than our confessions. It says a whole lot more about who we believe God to be than what we might say we believe about God, what we might explain to somebody else who we believe God to be. The way we respond with our actions and with our trust and with our faith or our lack of faith reveals really where we're at spiritually. Do we really trust the Father to be good? Do we really trust the Father to provide? Or do we need to come up with some other system to that we can put together to somehow create an exit plan, a a bridge, a life raft out of this situation. What they do after affirming that they believe this covenant three times and they agree to it, they begin to, uh, they come up with a plan and they rapidly break the first three commandments that God had already given them, rapidly. So here's what happens. Uh, they say, make for us up, make us gods who shall go before us. This is their command to their request to Aaron. And up, you see it kind of beginning with the word up. I mean, that's that's a kind of a stern. It's not, hey, Aaron, uh, we're struggling. We're not really sure. What do you think? Uh, they demand of Aaron. Get up. And you need to come up with a solution here. Not what do you think we should do, Aaron? They demand of him to make for them gods. You're the mediator now. Moses is gone. You're the guy. And they feel like they can kind of influence Aaron. And so they demand of Aaron. And Aaron already knows this is a stiff-necked bunch of people. He's going to say that later. This group of people, are they refuse to humble themselves. They refuse to. Uh, multiple times already, they've challenged and tested God many times to this point. And he, Aaron's thinking, I'm not going to be able to persuade him. And so they demand of him, go make for us gods. Because we don't know where Moses is and what has become of him. And so verse 2, Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold and that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from the, their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day, and they offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. They say, we want a different God. Moses has gone. He's disappeared. We don't know what's happened to him. Interestingly enough, Moses was not their God, never was their God, never claimed to be their God. He was a mediator on behalf of their God. He came and he proclaimed the God to them. He spoke on behalf of God to them, but he never claimed to be their God. But they had elevated Moses that he was their God. And they were intimidated by God. In fact, when they heard God speak from the mountain, they even said, if, if it would be all right with you, if you would just please don't let us ever have to hear God speak again. Let him tell you what we need to hear and then come talk to us about it. Because they were in fear 
as they heard and saw the manifested presence of God, the earthquake, the fire, the smoke, the trumpet that grew louder and louder and louder and louder, all of that overwhelming experience and God speaking from the mountain. They said, we would prefer not to ever have that ever happen again. Moses, if you could just kind of give us the diluted version of that, the veiled version of that. We would love that because that we, wow, that was overwhelming to us. So they elevated Moses to a place he wasn't even supposed to be and he never claimed to be. And then when Moses isn't there, instead of observing the giant fire and smoke on the top of the mountain, they say, you know what, let's come up with something. We don't know where Moses is. We got to come up with another plan. And so they make for themselves another God, have no other gods before me. Number two, they, uh, we, they were told not to have any graven images. Don't create something on the earth and make something, carve something, construct something, mold something to represent me that is from whether something in the heavens or on the earth or, you know, don't make it some image to represent me that is a created image because I am not, I have not been created and everything that you use is something I have made and when you take something that I have made and you exalt it, you take the creator, and you push him aside, and you elevate the created, and you make that above the one who made it. And you can't do that. So don't take anything and make it your God. It's interesting that in all the incredible, beautiful, wonderful images that the Old Testament gives us and the New Testament gives us to help us see images, to help us conjure up and remember certain things about God and be reminded of God, he never gives us a thing to worship. He gives us places to go to worship. He gives us pictures that will help us understand how to worship. He gives us images and different things that that help us see different dimensions of who he is or pictures that are going to be fulfilled in Christ. But he never gives us a thing and says, this is us. In fact, many argue that the cross... By itself, the jewelry we have around our necks or we put it in different places has become a place of false worship where we have created a graven image. I'm not saying that. I think it can be representative and wonderful to to remind us of Christ's sacrifice for us. But even that, we could pervert and make something it wasn't intended to be. There's nothing sacred, holy, powerful in a piece of wood that murders people. What it represents, powerful. Cross itself, disgusting, quite frankly. It's not to be worshipped. We're told not to make graven images, and yet what they do is they, he says, okay, get all your gold, uh, and, or it's not all, but some of your gold, that they, by the way, God provided for them uh, when they were leaving Egypt. I don't know if you remember that part of the story. They're on their way out of town, and uh, finally, Pharaoh has said, look, we're sick of this. You've taken our firstborn sons. We're done. We give up. Checkmate. All right, just get out of town, leave us. And the Egyptians just begin, as the, as the Israelites are leaving their nation, the nation of Egypt, the Egyptians are giving them gold and they're giving them money and they're giving them whatever they can give them. Just that They are pillaging by God's provision, not their power, not their influence, not their persuasion, not their swords, but by God's gracious provision, he is providing this nation of slaves wealth that they had never been paid before. And they're getting all of this money. They take the gold. They're living in the wilderness. And then they take the gold provided for them by God. And they have used it to fashion it to make an idol, an idol to worship. 
No other gods before me, no graven image. And then this is a subtle one, but very powerful uh, mistake that they made in, in dangerous perversion of God. Aaron made a proclamation and said, this is in verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I don't know when you read that the first time what you thought, but I mean, when, when I read it the first time, my thought was, oh, he's kind of trying to bring them back around to God because the Lord is the Lord and that's who. But that's not what's going on here. He's taken the name for God. And he has attached it to something that is not God. You understand that? He has taken the name of God and he has used it in vain. I'm told, do not use my name in vain. They took God's name and they attached it to a God of their own making. If someone was to ask you, you know, who is your God? Who, or ask them, who is the God that delivered you from Egypt? They would say the Lord. The Lord delivered me from Egypt. Is that true or is that false? That's absolutely true. And they said, well, tell me more about the Lord. And the second that they go, well, this is him over here. He's a golden cow. This is the Lord. Now they have misrepresented who God is. Our culture is spectacular at doing this. We live in a time, arguably, we have probably never been a more spiritual country than we are today. And more godless at the same time. Far more spiritual, but far more godless. 40%, 44% of the Washington County, under recent statistics, they estimate, is not affiliated with any religious group. Now, that's not to say they're not spiritual, but they would clearly say they are not religious. That's Washington County. Hello? I mean, you know, Sullivan County is the same thing. It's actually 44, 45%, 1% higher. I would think it would be the opposite, but nonetheless, that's what the numbers say. And so 44 to 45% regionally, people say, we don't really have any religious affiliation. You know, they refuse to check that box. Now, we understand. Many of those people probably have some connections, but they have walked away from their previous affiliations. Why? Why would they walk away? For various reasons. Various reasons. One of those reasons, I don't want to get, I could get in the weeds so deep in this one, um, but this is so important for us to think about. One of those is because we have taken Christianity and we have exchanged the one true God in the proclamation and responsibility, the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and to every segment of the population we have traded that and we've become, you know, some political arm of whatever group. And we are more passionate about who everybody's going to vote for and what's going on politically. And we've gotten all into the politics thing. And so younger generations have looked and they're going, you know what, you guys are mad about homosexuality and you're mad about abortion. I mean, but, but you, you don't seem to be concerned about feeding people who don't have enough food. You don't seem concerned about the less fortunate. You don't seem concerned about people who don't have anything. All you seem concerned about is um, these couple pet things that you like to rant on. Now, I would argue to those people that if you care about the poor and you care about the um, less fortunate, you care about the people who don't have whatever, but yet you don't have a problem with abortion, you are as in error as they are. Both groups, there's a problem, right? And so we, we've, 
kind of picked up certain things and we've become this and that. And we, and we have unfortunately been misrepresented culturally, Christians have, because they, they just, they ran about this, they ran about that, they ran about, you know. We have allowed people, because of our confusion of who God is and who we are as God's people, to easily misrepresent who we are as followers of Christ. And we have perverted the name of God and the name of Jesus and the name of Christ to the point where calling yourself a Christian is just going to create more confusion nowadays. That almost, if you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, whatever you do, don't call yourself a Christian because you will be put into some stereotype little box that they're going to make presuppositions and they've got a bunch of views of what you believe. And so now we even have to distance ourselves from Christ's in the name, little Christians, little Christs, because it has been so misrepresented in our culture to where if you're going to talk to somebody, you're really better to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Jesus person. I'm a, I'm a whatever. I, it's like you have to say something else so you can have a fresh conversation without all the baggage of what has been, how we've misrepresented Christ. And I'm not saying that's anybody in this room's misrepresented Christ. I'm just saying as a whole, we have, we've really messed things up. We've, we've really messed things up. And maybe we need to go back to what does it really mean to follow Christ? Clearly, uh, let me give you another way we've misrepresented Christ. I see this all the time. Let's just pick, uh, without getting into specifics, just some of the moral things right now um, where we have said, well, you know, abortion or homosexuality, we'll pick on those two. You say, well, you know, if somebody does something and wants to do something with their life and they're not hurting you, Leave them alone. Who cares? God loves everybody. Everybody's free to do their own thing. They should be able to do whatever they want. This is the flip side of it. So you should let them do, just stop having an opinion. Stop pushing your views on everybody else. Stop it. God loves everybody. God's this, God's that. Wait, again, there's a perversion of God. God is loving. Absolutely. He's loving and he's gracious. But more than being loving, God is holy, holy, holy. Never has he been called loving, 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 gracious, 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 nice, 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 soft, 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 fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzzy. But he has been called holy, holy, holy. And you're going to see in his holiness how he feels about his name and his image and false worship and the perversion of his integrity, character, and name. He doesn't take it lightly. and He doesn't appreciate people attaching the characteristic of love to immorality and saying God doesn't have a problem with that. God is holy, holy, holy. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's gracious. But he's also just. And he does not sacrifice his justice and his holiness to love without reconciling justice, truth, and that love. We have perverted the name of God. We have created it and, and, and we have taken all these different views of religion and different views in our society and we have, we have become synchronistic. Synchronistic. We are synchronizing different contradictory views and putting them together to create some new version of God that we feel like is more marketable and it is a distortion of who the true God is. So the average person has a belief in God that is informed by lots of different places, informed by their education, by their movies, by their experiences, by their traditions, by their music, 
by their own personal journey. We inform who we think God is by all of these different outside influences, and very few of us ever inform and define our understanding of God from His Word, which is why I talked about a minute ago, it's a big deal for us as a church to say, we we believe in the Word of God as our final authority, the sufficiency of, of this Word of God. Because how else can we know that we're right in what we believe about anything if we don't go back to the infallible, inerrant Word of God, the unchanging Word of God? How can we ever trust our view? Anybody's view that you just come up with, well, I think God's this, I think God's that, I think is irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant if it is not traced back to the Word of God, validated in the Word of God. I, I talked to a guy, a uh, neighbor of, of mine, this past week, and uh, he's this Muslim family, lives down the street from us. Kids play soccer with our kids occasionally, and they've, they've come down to our house, and we've you know done some things. We're trying to build a relationship for the first time, had an opportunity to meet the father had a great conversation with him, and um, very, very polite. Um, anyways, a great conversation, and he, uh, he said, you know, he was asking, you know, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, and so you moved here to start a church? Yeah, and I'm, you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, wow, for, again, think, think about this as a Muslim, how isolated he feels, but there are churches on every corner, and what does he think about when he thinks of Christianity in our area? I mean, I, you just, I'm, I'm trying to get in his mind. I'm thinking, I'm, what, is he, what is his perception of Christianity? And so I said, I said, yeah, well, you know, there's lots of churches and there are a lot of good churches that, um, but, there, you know, sometimes there's a lot of families involved different th- and they can become inward focused and they don't really think about the community as much. And so we just felt like it'd be helpful to have another church, that a new fresh church, that, that our perspective was how do we serve? How do we love? How do we reach out in, 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 um, into the community? He says, oh, yes, church is very powerful. Religion is very powerful in this country. And I was like, well, not so much. I mean, <laughs> you know, not, not from my perspective, it's not. And then I thought, you know, again, how do I explain Christ to him? So I said, I said, you know, Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. I said, that's really the heartbeat. Is we we want to be, as a pastor, it's not about me having power over anybody. I want to be like Jesus. I want to lay down so that others can get on top and can get higher. I want to help other people get closer to God. And so I lay my life down so that others can be elevated. I know that's a difference than the power structure he's used to in Islam and where he grew up in Africa and the different things. So I understood that he's, hopefully that's a little seed planted, right? And so he, you know, we chit-chatted for another moment and he said, he said, you know, basically, you know, we believe in Islam. We believe in Jesus. He was a prophet to us. And, um, but most, Muhammad was the last prophet. And so, um, you know, other than that, everything's basically the same between our two beliefs. And um, I'm just listening to him. It was, you know, I wasn't the time to argue um, yet. And um, then he looks around and he says, you have a big family. And uh, I said, yes. And he's like, you know, how many? He said, five. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, we have four. And I said, I know. I look like I'm Muslim, don't I? He's like, he laughed. He thought that was funny. And so we had a little joke there, trying to build a relationship there, you know. So, you know, humor is a good way to do it. He's like, ah, oh, funny, that's good. You know, so um, anyways, it, doors open, further conversation. But I, from his perspective, it's all the same thing. Hey, Muhammad, Jesus, yeah, potato, patata, whatever. It's all the same. No, it's not. It's not. And hopefully, and I would ask you to pray for that family. Hopefully we'll continue to be able to go forward from this, just thanking the Lord that we had that conversation. But who is your God? We're living in a time where you've got a Buddhist and you have a Muslim and you have a Christian and you have a Baptist and you have a Pentecostal and you have a whatever in a 
what, all these different groups and on one street. And they can all meet together, walking their dogs, and talk about God in a general way and be like, well, we all believe the same thing, basically. Somebody once said, on the Christianity and other religions appear to be, on the surface, appear to be very different. But in essence, they're really all the same. And I would contend the opposite is true. Christianity, in contrast to all other religions, on the surface appears to be very similar, but in its essence is vastly different. And as the story progresses, we can kind of see all of this come together. And we're going to talk more next week about this and God's judgment upon them. But just to, to bring this home, a couple thoughts. Aaron made a proclamation tomorrow. Shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and they the people sat down and to eat and drink and rose up to play. From the outside looking in, it was a great day of worship, great day of celebration, great day for the camp. It looked from the outside looking in, you would have thought nothing has changed. But at the center and the focus of the whole camp was this little golden cow that they traded for the God who's consumed a mountain behind them. Unbelievable. And here's what's going on. Verse 7. Moses and God are still talking up on the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, who is clearly unaware of what has happened below him on the ground, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So he says, they've, they've worshipped, they sacrificed it, and they've presented this false god and said, This is your god, these are your gods, who have, who have delivered you from the land of Egypt. The Lord, number one, the Lord sees. The Lord sees. There is nothing that goes on in your head in your heart, or in your home that God does not see. God sees. He knows. He understands. Lots of stuff might be going on in your world, but understand that God sees through all of the other things, and He sees what's going on on the throne of your heart. He knows what's happening there. He sees. So how does the Lord respond? Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The stiff-necked people. This is, a, uh, this is called anthropomorphic language. Anthro-man, pomorphic form of. It's, he's, saying, he's using some words to try to describe. It's not that they have literally these... This, the Israelites were unable to look to the... They couldn't bend their necks. They were really kind of an awkward bunch. They could, no, he's saying their character is such that they can't humble themselves and they can't bow down and they can't worship. They are unteachable. They lack humility. They're arrogant. They're prideful. They are stiff-necked. They won't submit to the creator of the universe who made them and has lovingly provided for them, preserved them, protected them. They're stiff-necked. And so he finally says, look, I've seen what they've done. 
Seeing this people there, stiff-necked people, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Translation, Moses, I'm about to incinerate the whole bunch of them and we're going to start over. And it's going to be a clean bunch. We're going to start with a fresh bone. We'll start with you, Moses. And we'll start with your family. And we're going to create a new nation. Because this nation is, I can't do, I can't work with them. I can't do anything with them. They're just, it's not good enough. We're going to have to start over. New group. Next. <laughs> Bring a new nation. Grow them up. Teach them the ways. We'll see what. This is a crazy moment. This is a crazy moment of the Word of God. We're going to have to start with a new group. And so what does Moses do? I mean, if I was Moses, I would have a tendency to be like, yeah, God, I'm with you. I'm, I, yeah. Could I have like a lightning bolt too? Because I'd like to throw one too. I'm a little mad also. Can I help you in this process? Can I, no, I mean, Moses, what does he do? How does he respond? What does he do when God exposes his holiness and reveals his wrath and his justice his just wrath. God's not just hot-headed. God's not just mad. God's not just grumpy. God has been patient again and again and again with them up until this point. And he's finally said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm ready to burn them. Start over. Moses says, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn against, hot against your your People, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Oh, God delivered his people just so he could fry them in the wilderness. That's why God delivered his people. That's why Moses is going, look, this is, going to, this is going to defame your name. This is going to pervert your name. And your name is what matters. Your glory is what matters, not the stiff-necked people. And yes, you can incinerate them. And yes, they deserve that. But that is going to violate your character and your name because verse well, the end of verse 10, uh, 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What a powerful prayer. What an amazing moment when a just God cools his wrath and is willing to give his people a second chance. Some would look at this and go, you know what? Uh, you can change the mind of God. You can change the mind of God. This is really amazing. I mean, if you just get mad enough or loud enough or talk enough or whatever to God, you can change his, his mind. I mean, Moses changed the mind of God. Moses confronted God and said, no, God, you can't kill your people. That wouldn't be fair. The Egyptians are going to say some things. You made a promise to the forefathers. You can't do that. And God says, okay, 
I'm going to change my mind. I, I don't think for a second God changed his mind. God does not change. God is immutable. He does not mutate, does not change. I don't think that's what happened. I think that God was able to rest his wrath, not because of the intercession of Moses, but because of the intercession of Christ. Approximately 1,500 years from this moment, a little over 1,500 years from this moment, Jesus is going to be wrongly convicted of guilt and nailed to a cross. And while he hangs on the cross, breathing his last breaths, he is going to say one of the most amazing things you can ever hear. A human could ever say who was treated a perfect. Jesus is perfect. No other human has ever been perfect. No other human, regardless of how unjust you have been treated and how wrong people have been towards you, you still are not perfect. At no point in your life have you ever been sinless and perfect. Jesus, sinless, perfect, on the cross, suffering agony beyond our comprehension. And he says the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I believe... God who is not confined by the calendar or the planner or by time, who is outside of time and is in eternity past. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth and God relented because he knew that his wrath would one day be extinguished in the sun. What made Moses' prayer powerful wasn't Moses. It wasn't his passion. It wasn't his argument towards God. It was... And there was persuasion. It was simply the fact that Jesus is the better mediator. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one who God's wrath has been poured out upon him on the cross. And he is the only reason why God did not destroy the nation in that moment. Because within that nation, get this, looking down from the mountain, within that nation of wicked people, there was a bloodline in the camp. Jesus, great, 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 great grandparents were in that camp. They weren't on the mountain. They were in the camp. And God knew that the provision for their sin would one day come. And his justice and his wrath would be satisfied on the cross in Christ. For us, the simple application for us to think about this morning couple quick questions. Who do you believe? What do you believe about God? I mean, intellectually, what do you believe about God? What, what, what reveals more about what you believe is not just your words, your confessions, your claims, but, but how you conduct your life. What do you do when you're waiting? What do you do when the answer doesn't come? What do you do when you, when you really have to just wait on God? Do you run to false idols? Do you run to, does your heart create, which all of our hearts are factories for making idols. We come up with idols really well. I mean, we can come up with another false Jesus really well. We can come up with our own. We come up with our own personal Jesus. When it's constructed to fit our needs and meets whatever. What, what personal Jesuses have you looked at? What, what are the things that you supplement for the real Jesus? Is it a person? Your jobs, your career? Is it an addiction? Is it Thought life, is it what is it the thing that you run to in the waiting to be your escape to provide another way? Because that really reveals what you really believe about God. 
And, and lastly, who is your mediator? Who's your mediator? If you think one day you're going to stand before God, and as the Muslims say, he's going to weigh your good and your bad, and he's going to go, yeah, you're good enough. It ain't going to happen. God is going to look at you as he's going to look at every other person that has ever lived on this earth, and he's going to go, you are a stiff-necked and stubborn person. What should preserve you from my wrath? And unless you can point to one who stood in the gap, whose wrath, God's wrath has been satisfied in him, who has been perfect and righteous and has been punished in your place, unless your faith and trust is in Christ as the mediator, you're in trouble and I'm in trouble. And so, who do you view God to be? What are the false saviors you're running after? Repent of those things and replace in their place the better mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray in these moments, God, that as we meditate on these truths, that you would make it crystal clear to us, God, that we would not construct, that that you would reveal the false saviors we've made. And that we would know that Jesus alone is the worthy mediator. Jesus is the only one that can preserve us in, from your wrath. You are just and you are holy. But you're also good. And you're gracious. And you've provided a way out. Father, sober us to who you really are. Not a God of just wrath. And not a God of just love. But a God of justice and righteousness and love and grace and mercy not deserved but never compromised. Wow us with the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name, we worship and we pray.